there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a minute before your podcast starts to talk about something very important to me. Black Lives Matter. I, Sarah Strumming, am committed to anti-racism and the companies that I oversee, the Cognitive Canine and Cogdog Radio, are also committed to anti-racism. I recognize my privilege here and I recognize that I have a platform where I can use my voice and I intend to do so in such a way that combats systemic racism because it absolutely affects the field of dog training and it's time that everybody with a platform uses it for good. I'm going to link a list of resources for ways that you can support Black, Indigenous, and people of color and also just some educational resources that I've found helpful in my anti-racism journey. And I hope that we can all stand together to dismantle racism in dog training and therefore in the world. Cheers. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And if we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. Hey friends, today I am so excited. I have Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward in Boulder, Colorado. She recently started her own podcast, The Pause and Reward Podcast, which I will of course link for you. And her book, Human Canine Behavior Connection, Building Better Relationships Through Dog Training, is a favorite of mine and it because it really resonates with my work. So I think you all would enjoy it too. Welcome to the podcast, Marissa. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited too, you guys. Marissa and I are recording a double header today, so yeah. you'll have to check out, check me out on her podcast. <laughs> and we've got Marissa here today. So Marissa, you are, you got a bunch of letters behind your name. You have a CTC, which I believe is Certified Trainer Counselor, and that's through the Academy for Dog Trainers. Yeah. And then you're also a Certified Professional Dog Trainer Knowledge Assessed. And I heard that you actually went to the Academy for Dog Trainers when it was in person. Is that yes. right? Yes. Oh my gosh. That was, um, I was 25. I told my parents that I was leaving my job at Martha Stewart Living in New York City. And then I was going to move to San Francisco and do a dog training program at the San Francisco SPCA. And they both looked at me like I was insane. But I did it and it was, oh my gosh, it was like the best two months ever. It was so amazing. Just like every day immersed in that program. It absolutely sounds incredible. And I love that your parents <laughs> were like, uh, <laughs> wait, what? Marissa has lost it. <laughs> we're <Okay>. not sure. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, that sounds like um, some typical parent reactions. Um, and Martha Stewart Living, that's also, that's a fascinating part of your origin story to me. <laughs> yes, yes. I went to school for textile design and then I was working in that field for just like two and a half years, but I wasn't passionate about it. And I met a trainer that went to the San Francisco program and I had coffee with her and then called my dad and was like, I'm moving. And, and that's, that's also like, I hadn't even trained a dog yet, Sarah. I was just like, Oh, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> he was like, that might, that might tell us a little bit about you. <laughs> that's some fantastic. Some impulsivity. <laughs> maybe, maybe a little bit, a little bit. She needs a scatter. Everybody get Marissa a scatter. Um, so unlike certain crazy people in the room, you just have one dog, right? So would yeah. you would you talk about him a little bit? I do. I have, um, oh, and he just woke up um, from laying down. I have a 12-year-old. I can't believe it. He's going to be 12 next month in October. Um, I have a 12-year-old Pyrenees lab mix named Sully that I adopted when he was six months old. Um, and he is, he's amazing, amazing, amazing. We only have one dog because... I just don't think we've tested it out with like my stepdaughter's dogs, but he's, he just likes life more. So like he's more social, he's more, um, feels more comfortable in the house when it's just him. Um, he can resource guard certain things from other dogs. Like it's just, I think it's better for his welfare and my welfare when it's just he and I. And so, um, so yes, I, I only have one dog. It's like a, I'm bizarre in, the, in this, in this training world in that way. Um, but he is amazing and been, uh, my heart and soul dog and taught me a lot. And we'll talk about him and my relationship with him as, as we go through the podcast today. Thanks for talking about him. I actually didn't know he was half Pyrenees and that, that makes him more interesting. He's not just a lab. <laughs> <laughs> this oh dog trainer, you guys, she just has one Labrador. Can you imagine? <laughs> No, no, he's half Pyrenees. It's fine. It's fine. That is so funny. I think Lisa Mullinax, <laughs> one of our favorite people, right? Yes, she yes, mutual I friend. Have, she and I have talked about that, like about certain breeds where we're like, yeah, you're just not that interesting. You're not that like complex to me, right? But the fact that he is Pyrenees, you're right. You're absolutely right. It does make him a little That bit adds more. a lot of complexity. A lot of complexity. That, ex that explains a lot of the stuff that you have worked through with oh, him for so sure. Funny. That's that's good. I you can hang out with us then, oh, I guess, good. if you good. I'm Pyrenees. not just um, <laughs> Still labs. I love labs too, but I get it. No, we love Labradors. They're actually wonderful, wonderful dogs. Um, so Marissa, let's talk about your book because when I read it, I had this, oh my God, I've never read this before moment, which kind of means that it's a dog training book that feels brand new. And that's huge to me because for the last like 20 plus years of my life, I've been soaking up information about dogs and so reading your book and feeling like it was new and actually reading the whole thing because true confessions like I usually don't um, was, was such a big thing and it dives deep into the fact that human behavior and dog behavior they're naturally intertwined because we live with them as our companions so they are not actually a rat in a box in a laboratory yeah. um, and they're not a dolphin in a tank either. And I think that 
talking about the way that our behaviors intertwine with theirs is really, really fantastic. So what compelled you to write this? Yeah, I think I'll tell you a little bit about my my experience. So when I moved to Boulder years ago, uh, I was 25. So this is, I'm not going to say how many years it was, but 25. And um, I was working at the Humane Society of Boulder Valley. That was my first animal sheltering gig. And I didn't know anyone here. I really, I really struggled living in Boulder. And of course I went to therapy to quote unquote, like fix myself. Like I very much mm-hmm. was like, I'm feeling levels of discomfort. I don't like this. I'll go to therapy. We'll get rid of it. Uh, kind of similar to how a lot of pet parents show up to dog training, right? Like yep, we'll get a dog totally. trainer, we'll fix the issue, so on and so forth. So I was sitting in my therapist's office and I was so distressed with myself that I had regressed in some of my progress. And she actually said to me, if one of your dog training clients had regressed, what would you say to them? And I had this like really compassionate voice of like, regression is a part of learning. We should expect regression. Like there was this like softness around um, taking care of the client, taking care of the dog and looking at it from the dog's perspective. And, and she goes, yeah, well, let's cultivate that voice so that we can use that voice when speaking to yourself. And I was like, oh, wow, that's a really fascinating parallel. Like <laughs> You were like, what, what, what? Yeah, I was like, <laughs> She's pretty good. I'm gonna keep saying that anyway. I was, um, I was just gonna say your therapist sounds pretty pretty decent. You yeah, scored. I was like, yeah, she's like one of my many therapists over the past year. <laughs> she was the first one. Um, and she I really started to pay attention to these parallels and I I I noticed was noticing them everywhere. Um, just like how I'm showing up with my clients, how I'm showing up with my dog, how I'm showing up with myself. And so it became really clear. It went a little deeper when, um, so I had moved to San Francisco after that, uh, worked there for many, many years. And then of course I met my partner, Scott, and he lived in Boulder. So like I was brought back to Boulder and I remember, um, we had, we were going up to his parents' house in Idaho. We all, like all his entire family went and I had worked on Sully's dog, dog concerns to a point where I felt like, you know what, I'm going to bring him. And like, I think he can coexist with the other dogs. And I think, I think that this will be a really good opportunity. And whoa, was I pushing him over the threshold. And what happened was when we arrived, we're hanging out with his family. My dog gets into an altercation with another dog. And I had immediate feelings of embarrassment and shame. Like the dog trainer's dog is now instigating arguments with the other dogs and the way in which I showed up with all of that fear, embarrassment, and shame, I was projecting it onto Sully. And he he became more and more stressed the more stressed I got. And I was like, oh, wow, this is that thing. Like, I can totally learn from this experience. Instead of just, like, spiraling it down this shame spiral and making me wrong and being embarrassed by him and making him wrong, I could actually utilize this as a learning opportunity to sit with some of my shame and embarrassment, um, you know, deal with it separately from Sully and then help him through the situation while also helping myself through the situation. And I'll, I'll never forget. I was on a phone with a great colleague and I was, I was talking to her about it and she was really helping me to understand that like the more and more I was projecting onto him, the worse and worse he was getting. Um, and so this was when 
the book really started. I found myself like hiking in Boulder, you know, recording conversations and thoughts and experiences with Sully into a voice recorder. And then there was like post-it notes all around our house. And then it sort of was um, blooming into this topic. And I wrote it a few years ago and then I rewrote it. Um, I relaunched it last year with, with some edits um, because you learn a lot over the course of a few years. <laughs> turns out, turns, turns out. out. Um, and <laughs> so, so yeah, so I, I'm, that's how it sort of, that, that's where the, the parallels, I started to notice them. And then that's what, how I noticed them with Sully and then really paying attention to how it's also showing up within my clients and their relationships with their dogs and their loved ones. So, um, and on a side note, Sarah, like the fact that you read it and felt like there was something more and you finished it. Like, I really like, thank you so much. That like, I mean, I, my career, that's like a highlight in my career. So thank you. Well, I, I mean it. I mean, it is to me, you know, Marissa and I were talking offline a little bit, you guys, about the fact that we both really feel like this is the way forward for, for mm -hmm. us in our industry yeah. is to actually start talking about the parallels between therapy, honestly, and dog training mm -hmm. and, and about these, um, these relationships because they are relationships that we have with our dogs. Yeah. It is very different from, um, you know, certainly by definition, you have a relationship with everything that you train, but I train my chickens certain behaviors, not really for fun, but just to make my life easier. <laughs> like They come when they're called and like go in the coop and things like that. Yeah. But that's so different from the dog that is sleeping next to me every night. Yeah. And we need to talk about that. And I always appreciate it when trainers talk about that. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing stuff when we actually start to unpack it all. I, I think so. So on that note, in the book, you outline your unique approach to behavior modification. You call it HCBC, Human Canine Behavior Connection. Uh, there are four steps in this approach, and they are training the pet parent, training the dog, enhancing the relationship, and then enhancing yourself. And I would love us to just dive into each of these areas. Yeah. So <clears throat> training the pet parent and training the dog are probably something that we're all as trainers and even as pet parents really familiar with that, like, um, you know, I, I'm sure you have heard a ton of folks call you and say, I, I heard this is more about training me than it is training the dog. And right, uh, so, right. So, so folks understand that like we have to impart a lot of wisdom and concepts and mechanical skills and, um, you know, all, all the things onto the pet parent and then together as a team, we are also then training the dog. So, um, that in and of itself is a lot for most pet parents, right? Because I mean, a lot of, I, I always joke that a lot of pet parents, they didn't get a dog to become a dog trainer, right? They, no, they, yeah. they got a dog because they want that companion. And when they have behavior issues, I mean, some have more threshold or, or bandwidth to deal with behavior issues and some folks don't. And so, um, imparting this wisdom and teaching them all these skills, uh, can sometimes be really overwhelming and daunting. And so 
that those two seem really self-explanatory and a lot of dog trainers are doing that. I, I'm no different in that way in the sense that I'm teaching the pet parents what they need to know and making it really specific to their dog. And then we're also training their dog and editing the training plan based off of how their dog is responding. Um, the other two steps are actually really more exciting for me um, as a trainer working with people. And the first one that we were the first one that you had mentioned was enhancing the relationship. So I, I specifically use the word enhancing there because I don't want to say or suggest that anybody's relationship isn't good as is. Um, I think that I have, I have a lot of clients say this to me. I think this is a really fascinating statement. They always say, um, well, you know, so he's barking and lunging. I'd really like to fix that behavior. And then they go into this other thing. They go, they, they say, but he's so lovely and he's yeah. really social. And, yeah. and, and I love that they're highlighting the areas where the relationship is successful. Um, and that they really want to point out um, that they have a really strong relationship. It's almost like their relationship breaks down when they're experiencing more challenging behavior, which is mm -hmm. the same for all of us, right? Like mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. it's easy for me to be in relationship with friends or colleagues or my partner, Scott, when, when things are going great, but it's not so easy to be in partnership when it's really hard. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. and, and so and it's the same for our dogs. And so, um, I will be really transparent with you, Sarah, that when I wrote the book, it was really easy for me to talk about my six relationship building principles in this idealistic way. Um, and, and just to sort of say, Hey, pet parents, I'd love for you to infuse these concepts in your relationship with your dog. And we'll talk about them and your relationship with yourself and your relationship with your loved ones. Um, but it's interesting as I'm trying to infuse this work with my clients, it's not that easy, right? It's not that easy for me to just say to my client, um, I know that you're really heartbroken about the dog that you have right now. And you're realizing you'll never be able to bring your dog to the coffee shop again. Well, you just need to accept that about your dog, right? Like it's not, even though that that's ultimately what's going to have to happen, just telling someone to accept or to be like, have this idealistic um, perspective about their dog. It's, it's not that easy. And this is where there's a lot of grief in what it is that we're doing when we are dealing with dogs that are um, behaviorally challenged. So um, I'll talk a little bit about that later, sort of like what I'm realizing about when I'm teaching these concepts versus when I'm living these concepts with my clients. Um, Cause mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff I've learned about myself as a trainer and my relationship to my clients. Um, but just to go back a step and just to tell our listeners a little bit about the six relationship building principles, the first one is um, curiosity. So uh, this is something that if all else fails and I'm either triggered by something or I'm triggered by my dog, if I just take a breath, and then ask a question to gather more information in order to see it from my dog's perspective, it's going to help me separate my experience from my dog's experience um, and not project a lot of my assumption or my concern or what I'm wanting from the situation onto the dog. Um, and so this one is really, really important to me. And I feel like it is the first one. It, it, it sort of helps us step back and go, okay, I know I'm frustrated that my dog is doing A, B, and C behavior, 
but what is happening for my dog in this moment and how can I help support him, which will ultimately help support me. Right. Um, yeah. Number two. That one. Okay. Sorry. Let me just pause on no, curiosity Jump in because this is the point where I went, Oh yes, she is speaking my language because I've been telling clients to get curious about their dog's behavior, Marissa, for years. Oh, amazing. Because I I learned it in therapy, right? Uh So when I start to feel panicky, my first job is to get curious about that anxiety Mm -hmm. and ask, hey, where's this coming from? And is it reality? Mm -hmm. Is it true? Powerful. Is it true? And if it is, what are my, what can I do? Mm -hmm. And if it isn't, then it isn't right. Mm -hmm. And then how can I, you know, how can I find the truth then in that moment? If that's not what, what is actually true. Mm -hmm. And when we get curious about our dog's behavior, we are less afraid of it. Another thing that I say all the time is that curiosity always lives underneath fear. So if you are afraid or the dog is afraid if you can actually find the curiosity about the thing that is scary, um, you can help yourself or your dog kind of overcome it. Oh, I love that. Better. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. We're, I love the question. Is it true? Because yes. um, lots of times it's not. <laughs> Sometimes the- it's a, a lot of times it's not. I was at an agility <laughs> trial like two weeks ago and I was just like, I don't know. I suck at agility. (laughs) My partner, Leslie was there and she rolls her eyes and she's like, Oh, you do. (laughs) She was like, is that real? (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you for her. Thank you for her. And I was like, okay, never mind. (laughs) Moving forward. Um, yeah. Asking, is it true? So anyway, I got to that point in the book and I was like, yes, this is it. This is the stuff. Yeah. Being curious, I think is really important. And part of the reason why I, like I mentioned, I put that first, cause I feel like that, that is going to dictate where you go. Like what is a spiral, yeah. what is a spiral you're going to take? Or, um, you know, how are you going to show up with your dog? And, and I feel like if you're believing that your dog is truly out to get you and like out to make your life difficult by barking and lunging on leash, you might show up into that training process with a way of like frustration, tension, you versus the dog. And like, that is only going to, as we know, like exacerbate the situation or Mm -hmm. like make the dog react more or have the dog shut down. And so I think being curious is super helpful to start with. Um, The next one is acceptance. And this one is really hard for me because I'm not great at it. So I will share. Me too. Right there with you. It's the hardest one. It's the hardest one. And I think I tried to operationalize it as best I could in the book in the sense of like, when I think about accepting something, I think about like creating some space to be frustrated about something, like giving that some airtime, I think is really important. And that's why us sitting and Sometimes us just sitting and hearing our clients is, is a gift that we can give them. We don't need to fix anything. We just need to hear their frustration and then we can all move on. Like some, sometimes that's healing in and of itself. Um, but hearing that and, um, you know, creating, creating space for that, but then also being curious around it, asking whether or not like what it is that's coming up for us is true. And then possibly reframing it 
or coming up with the next plan. So I don't think acceptance is sort of like resigning to the fact that you can't do anything about it, but it might be reframing how you're holding the situation. So an example with a dog would be like, I accept the fact that my dog really is unhappy at dog parks and I should not be bringing my dog there. And what I can do instead is work on his behavior, maybe with a known dog, because that's a less stressful environment for him. He's going to do one-on-one play dates because he can navigate the dynamics of that relationship versus going into a frat party at the dog park, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think it means that you just have to wash your hands and walk away. Um, I do think you can create something new within that opportunity. So I think so. And I think... Um this is just bringing up one of my favorite words is Santosha. It's a Sanskrit word and it means the practice of saying and instead of, but so essentially saying my dog hates the dog park and And. I love my dog and he's fabulous in all these other ways. Uh Or I'm having this behavior challenge with my dog and we're going to work through it. We're going to work on it. Yep. And we're going to stay together through it, you know, kind of things yeah. like that. So that's a big one for me with basically, I don't have any dogs that don't have behavior challenges. Um, probably because of the kinds of dogs I choose to I live know. with. all my fault. <laughs> um, and so when I learned about that word, I was like, oh, that's it. I can love them yeah. deeply. And then also be challenged by their behavior sometimes. Yeah. It's not one or the other. I, um, right. Which is really hard for folks that really need it like black and white. Um, you know, like folks will be like, how is Sully? And I'll be like, uh, you know, he is this and he's this. And some of those things are the complete opposite because, because and it's hard for people to hear you sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's all the things, right. It's not just one or the other. Um, so yeah. So I appreciate that. And you know, speaking of language, the number three is compassionate communication. And what that means is really paying attention to how we're talking about our dogs and what is the language that we're using and whether or not that language is rooted in the truth, right? So I have a few, um, a few clients where, you know, my dog is um, stubborn or my dog never does it right. Or, you know, like really using this language that helps us put those negative glasses on and then look at our dog through that lens. And, you know, research shows us that the more we use that language, the more we are going to find data from our environment to support that. Mm -hmm. So, um, making sure that we are, like you said, almost creating space for another reality and creating space for, you know, my dog can be reactive at times and sometimes he can recover. Mm -hmm. It creates a space for you as the pet parent to notice also the recovery. Um, Because when we, again, like when we're looking at someone or um, the dog in this case through the, through that, that, that um, negative bias lens, we're just going to find that over and over and over again. And we're not going to see the other choices that are being made, which is why Kathy Sadeo's Plenty in Life and uh, Plenty in Life is Free book, in addition to the Smart Times 50, was brilliant, right? Mm-hmm. Because it teaches totally. clients to, How go, to see the good. 
Yes. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, wow. You made 50 good choices today. My dog's, my dog's a genius. It's amazing. Yes. Smart times 50. You guys all link um, about plenty and life is free in the show notes. It's absolutely one of, it's one of my favorite books. Mm-hmm. It's one of Marissa's favorite books. And I use smart times 50 with clients every day, every day. And it transforms their, the, it transforms the lens through which they view their dog. It is genius. Yeah. It's totally genius. And I, I was telling Kathy the other day, I was like, I'm using smart times 50 on Scott. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to find 50 things that Scott did today that are amazing because why not? Right. I mean, or even myself, like smart times 50 on myself, like how, hey, like, how yeah. hard is that? Right. Um, oh man, that's tough. That's a tough But one. that is a good challenge yeah. because that's what, I mean, that's what I need. Like yeah. no one criticizes me more than me. Oh, so, um, so that's number three. Number four is support and co-create. And this is talking about, um, really helping pet parents see that their dogs have needs the same way that they have needs and really being able to talk about, I know that you don't want to have to do this, but your dog needs this. So how can we work together as a team to compromise and support both of you so that we're not building resentment within the relationship? Um, so, you know, is there like, let's say, um, you know, the dog needs access to, more mental, uh, more physical or mental stimulation. And the pet parent just doesn't have the time to be exercising the dog in this way. It's like, how can we co-create a plan that mm. takes into account everybody's needs, right? So that it actually gets done. And we're honoring that both parties have a say and have, have, have a role and a voice within that relationship. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, trainers that, that are, addressing behavior issues from a holistic place, right? We're making sure that the dog's needs are being met and um, that their physical, emotional, and mental needs are addressed. This shouldn't be new, right? This is just more about right. bringing it to the forefront and the surface and talking about it with clients. Um, so, and, and including them in that pr- process. That's why I had it co-create. It's not just me telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. us creating a plan together that will, will work. Absolutely. And I think... Again, I'm I'm thinking about a client that I'm working with right now whose dog is very challenging. And I feel like she has orchestrated her entire life around this dog so far. Yeah. And that is not fair to her. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. And we we have to co-create, I love that, with our client Mm -hmm. to help this dog because um I feel like I know exactly what I would do and I've got it all laid out in my head, but he doesn't live in my house. Yeah. He lives in her house. So we need to work together to get there. Um, And so that the previous point, that compassionate communication with her about that, that's what we have to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it's really important that we, and it sounds like you're doing an amazing job of not doing this, right? like demonizing the client for like, for so long, we we used to talk about like client compliance and clients are the worst. And it's like, they're trying their best, you know, like they did not, again, I got it. Yeah. That stopped being an issue for me when I got better as a trainer. I got to tell you that stopped being an issue for me a long time ago. And it was an issue in the beginning of my career for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, because and then it's like talking it's... to colleagues about it, bitching about our clients basically yeah. was another pattern, harmful pattern that I was involved in at that time. Uh-huh. Oh, that yes. since since walking away from that and focusing on solutions, I mean, like magic. I now rarely think about client compliance. Rarely. A hundred percent agree. And I appreciate you bringing up this like idea of, you know, when we're, when we're, we get in those like spiral patterns of, you know, speaking poorly about whatever group, right. Whether it's like punishment based Mm -hmm. trainers or whether it's like, can you believe that that shelter is doing this with their behavior program or like all the things, right. Um, It gets to be, it's really toxic. Um, And it, It it, it's really joining, but in like a negative way, like, like you're, you're building community, but the foundation of the community is off of negativity. Right. Um, and so how can you have that same level of community with trainers, but be focusing on conversations that are like solution oriented. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Exactly. So, um, so number five is building trust. And I talk a lot about um, Dr. Susan Friedman's trust account. So using that as an example in terms of how many positive experiences are we putting into that relationship trust account and mm-hmm. are building up so many that if we, if we have to withdraw, which we will, that we still have a positive balance. So I talk a lot about that as an analogy. And then we walk through with my clients um, ways in which they're adding and ways in which they might need to remove at times. Um, and then we also talk about a lot of choice and control in the training. So, mm-hmm. um, this is so fun for me because I'm, I'm doing more with the choice and control, um, in general with my clients. And it's so fascinating to watch, especially with, um, training around start buttons and, um, working with a particular client that is, he's got, you know, two page long trigger list. I mean, he's, it's, it's yeah. a lot of things that are going on for him. And so that we can give him as much control over his environment. Um, and really talking about that, like choice and control is reinforcing for both us and the dog. So how can I give mm. my clients as much choice and control in the training plan as much as possible? And then how do we do that with the dog? Um, so I love this one. Clients really resonate to this one. And a lot of my clients are already embodying these principles. They just didn't realize they were, which is why, again, Mm -hmm. I go back to calling this step enhancing the relationship um, because some of these things might be new to them, but some of them are doing a really good job and pointing that out and highlighting that is is also a big gift as well so that they can see themselves um, succeeding in the relationship with their dog. Yes, I love it. I think um, I definitely talk about the trust account as well, uh, because I also talk a lot about choice moments and no choice moments for my dogs. And I try to help educate people on the fact that, you know, because when I say, give your dog choice, give your, you know, give your dog control over the situation. And then the person is like, well, you know, this is happening. And I can't give him a choice in this scenario. It is as important that we provide them action steps for those other moments so that we keep that trust account intact. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, and I think it was Amy Cook and I think, I believe it was Shade. You guys 
recorded mm-hmm. it. Jade Weitzel, yeah. Yeah, with that, um, the podcast, I think it was on Fenzy, the Positive Reinforcement 2.0. And like that, I listened to that like five times. It was just like mind blowing. Like that was like, yes, yeah. yes. Because it was the first time I had heard, I think it was specifically came from you. It, it wasn't this like concept of like, just give them choice. You were like, sometimes you can, <laughs> and sometimes right. you can't. And when you can't, be really mindful not to ask them. Would you like to come into the right. car with the vet? And the dog goes, no. And right. you're like, oh, sorry, you got to hop in the car, right? It's like, right. So that that example, like that really, really stuck with me and was really resonant with me because it, it felt really practical in terms of like taking this yeah. construct of choice. A lot of these are constructs, really. Taking these constructs and then actually making them applicable felt really um, resonant for me there. So thank you. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that was such a fun thing to record. And we actually, we had to do it twice. I'm remembering right now because the first time something went wrong with, I think it was Shade's audio. Uh-huh. And it was just, it was a bonus. We got to do it twice. I got to have that conversation with those women twice. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was it, really fantastic it's for me. It's really awesome. I, lo- I love it. Yeah. Um, and then lastly is celebration. This is another one that I'm not wonderful at either. Um <laughs> speaking my language I try so hard (laughs) it's just like doesn't land or something I don't know Um, but um I think for this is I mean going back to Dr. Susan Friedman because everything can go back to that amazing amazing woman that um you know really celebrating the approximation so celebrating Mm -hmm. like prompting the pet parent to celebrate the small moments within their dog's behavior, but then also within their behavior is huge because we're, we're always striving to celebrate a final achievement instead of, you know, um, celebrating the small approximations along the way. Um, and so I think I'm really good at celebrating others. I just have a hard time celebrating me in the moment. Right. Um, yeah. And, and so I really love this one. And I think clients really respond well to this. It's hard for them to receive it sometimes too. Um, But I think flexing this muscle of celebrating ourselves and our canines is such an important um, practice. So I I really love focusing on this with my clients. And I think it's easy for me to do with clients and I need to work on it for myself. (laughs) For sure. I'm so good at being like, okay, let's talk about everything awesome that went right in this session. Yeah. I'm really good at that. That's a great question. And then, and then <laughs> I have a harder time doing that for myself when if I'm reviewing a training video or I just had an agility run with my dog or uh-huh. something like that, trying to train myself to celebrate the approximations, celebrate what went right. Um, it is, it's really important to do. And I think yeah. it all just, every everything comes back to positive reinforcement right and so what is celebration if not positively reinforcing those approximations just further yeah absolutely yeah so then so those are the six relationship building principles and then the last step like you mentioned from forever ago in this in this podcast was um (laughs) finally enhancing ourselves so it's really just helping the client notice that that steps one, two, and three. So steps one and two are really focused on behavior change and steps um, three and four are focused on relationships. That steps one, two, and three are really about, like there's so much parallel in there that we can use in our lives 
and in our relationships with ourselves and our relationships with our loved ones. So I don't work with our, with my clients and, and ask them like, you know, let's talk about now your relationship with your mom. Like I'm not a therapist and I don't, I don't, I don't go there. Right. 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 Um, really clear line as to where of what I don't cross. Um, however, sometimes organically my clients will say, Oh wow, this is like how I show up at work. Or this is, um, very similar to what I do and don't do with my son or, and just really capitalizing on those, parallels so that folks can be learning about um, ways in which they can expand themselves through the lens of working with their dog and their relationship with their dog. Um, and so this stuff is really cool um, because I, it's like you said before, it's like, it's more than just dog training. It's like really peeling back a bunch of layers and, and, and providing an opportunity for folks to look at themselves in a deeper way that's ultimately going to have a larger impact on their life in general. Um, and so that's the stuff I'm really, really excited about being a part of and, and hearing that feedback from my clients as well. Um, an example that I have with one of my puppy parents, um, she's an amazing woman and she's got this Bishla. He's an amazing dog. And she said, I get really frustrated when my dog is not checking in with me when he's checking in externally, like, like, like when he's pulling and whatever. And I was like, okay, that's great. How could, how can we make checking in with checking out? Right. So like not looking at you as valuable as checking in. And she was like, oh, well, when he doesn't check in with me, he's, he's building confidence and he's being curious and, and he's, you know, engaging with his environment. And it was this really beautiful reframe that she had around, you know, making his behavior wrong. And now all of a sudden his wrong behavior had a different meaning. And then she actually started to, to create some reframes about her own life. And, you know, instead of calling herself lazy or, you know, A, B, and C wrong label, she was like, how valuable is that label just as much as like a positive label would be, right? So mm -hmm. we had this really beautiful conversation around shifting our mindset. Um, and again, we can teach the dog how to check in with her. Like, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can get there. We can get there. Um, however, instead of making it wrong, we started to see the opportunity within it. So just being a part of those conversations to me is really exciting because- it, again, it's not just about dog training then. Yes, completely. And I think um, I have this a friend who is a great trainer and she's a competitive obedience person. Mm -hmm. And she, one of her issues with her dog is that he barks in healing, which is um, major point deductions and a big problem. Mm -hmm. But she said something to me that blew my mind when we were talking about it mm -hmm. and she just said you know I believe in his voice and I believe that he is telling me something and if mm -hmm. I can figure out what that is then we are gonna have this yes I just got and chills. I was like I know I did too just yeah. retelling the story and I was like well this is about the most refreshing conversation about competitive obedience I've had in my life yeah. <laughs> and it's true obedience <laughs> They have such beautiful performances together when 
her communication is crystal clear. Yeah. And so his communication back to her sometimes comes in the form of barking. Yeah. And rather than see it as bad or wrong or that he's too aroused or whatever, she said, I believe in his voice and I believe he's saying, he's telling me something needs to change for him for this to work. Yeah. And I'm like, oh man, like, certainly not all of our clients are going to be that person. However, we can help them to, to get closer to that. Yeah, absolutely. Like shaping the approximations there. Right. Because yeah, yeah, like the way that conversation that I had with that client is going to look very different than the conversation that I'm going to have with a different client. Right. That like might not be ready to reframe or think about it as an opportunity. Like there are clients and this is actually a perfect segue to to what I wanted to share about my experience living this book, right? It's one thing Mm -hmm. to write about it. It's another thing to live. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I felt really comfortable talking about these concepts in this, like, like, like I had mentioned earlier, like this idealistic way. It's like, be curious and accept your dog and lean into trust. Like it's, it sounds all lovely. Right. 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 And I was really good at, talking about in the book and teaching people at workshops. But when I was actually working with my clients, it felt way different because I wasn't like talking at them. I was in it with them. I was really, really Mm -hmm. in it with them. Whereas the book, you're reading it. You can do, you can deal with it on your own. There's exercises in there or at a workshop. I'm talking to a bunch of people, but when I'm in it with my clients, it, I can't just say to my client that is crying in front of me, right? And I sort of alluded to this earlier. If this person is like, I have a significant, like my dog just bit someone. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know what? Celebrate the approximations. And try, <laughs> right? like, give me a, but like, no way, right? There isn't, that is not that's not helpful in the moment because there is true grief. Like I had said that we are dealing with as dog trainers. And so it was really fascinating. I started to see a coach this year and she was helping me um, infuse some of the stuff into my work with my clients. And she asked me this amazing question one day. She said, I sense you're getting frustrated with your clients. I sense you're, there's a lot of tension. I, you know, I sense that you're, you're, you're frustrated with, with, with the processes that you've created. I have a question for you. Are you using your six relationship building principles with your clients? And I was like, Oh my God, I'm not. <laughs> it was like this. Wow. Huge. Like, oh my God. I'm totally not. I'm like asking them to do it with their dogs but I'm not really doing it with them. So it's this really sort of mind blowing experience. Um, and we had a, a big chuckle about it. Cause I think I like dropped my book and walked away. I was like, Oh my God, I can't even, I can't even. Deal with it. Um, and I guess I just, she's teaching me how to help sit with my clients and just listen to some of their concerns and infuse these relationship building principles when it makes sense and when it's the right time, right? Like mm. not imparting my fix it mentality mm. onto the situation and just sometimes being there to hold space for them and then co-creating the solution from there. 
So like sometimes I'll say to my clients, like, yes, I, I totally understand your frustration. Um, you know, I'll share maybe a personal example and then I'll say something like, what would best serve you right now, given that that's what you're experiencing? Instead of me being yeah. like, okay, I have a protocol for that. Let's start with the protocol. <laughs> jumping right into it. I want them to be as much part of the solution as possible. And that's been a huge mindset shift for me um, because I'm a fixer. I like want to make people feel better. And oh God, yes. sometimes that's not what might be needed in that particular moment. And so it's, it's been a real big learning curve for me to live the book in my personal life. And like, I'm noticing with my, with my clients. So just full transparency. <laughs> I just heard yesterday a quote from Anne Lamott, which is, I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh -huh. um, help is the sunny side of control. So basically you're trying to help, you're trying to fix. And it's you putting like a sunshine and smiley face on your control problem. <laughs> and, I, and I basically was on a podcast and I went, oh God, <laughs> because it's a hundred percent me. It's totally me. I'm a, yeah. I'm a helper. I'm a fixer. And it's all, it all stems from control. And if we can just get real about that then maybe we can help people more from a more genuine place. Yes. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, I think I was sharing with you. It's totally been like the, the thing I have looked at this year and, and, and again, it's like, Oh, Oh, of course I see it's happening with my clients. Of course it's happening with, you know, my relationship with my dog. Of course it's happening in my um, partnership with Scott. Like, of course. Right. And I think, right. I think right. what's really important about this is that we have relationships to everything in our world, whether they're tangible or they're our dogs, or we have relationships to our career. We have relationships to the training process. Um, yep. our, our clients have relationships to us, right? And so being aware of how we're showing up and all of that, um, both positively where we're, where we're doing really well in that and where we're struggling in that, I think is, is really important. And that is, that's the work that we all need, need to do. Definitely. So to kind of round us out, mm -hmm. is there something that you wish all pet parents knew if you could like wave your magic wand and then suddenly all of your clients from here forward would understand this one thing? What would that be? Yeah, this is such a brilliant question. I had a moment where I was like, wow, that's a good <laughs> Um, I think it would be that our dogs are having a separate experience from us that a lot of times doesn't have a, it, it's not about us. We have a lot of story and projection and assumption that we make their experience about us and they are their own entity and their own being. And they're experiencing the world the way that we're experiencing the world. And yes, we are intertwined, um, but their experience is as valuable as our experience. Um, and for us to be curious about what is going on for them and, and, and what's going on for us. And then how do we co-create from that place versus I need the dog to be fixed. He's, you know, <laughs> yeah. 
his experience is actually impeding my experience and my experience is more valuable than his experience. Like that sort of mentality. Um, I think there, I think we're moving away from that. I think a lot of people are shifting that mindset, um, as pet parents, but I do think we still need some more work on that, that like they are sometimes experiencing things and, um, it's up to us to help them through that experience versus, um, demonizing them for that experience. Definitely. I think in the sport training world, um, there's a whole lot of kind of tying your dog's behavior and your dog's performance to your self-worth. Yes. Yeah. And it's a, it's a big one that we got to coach clients through a lot of the time. And like you, you were talking about Sully's behavior when he was in a situation he, that was too hard for him. Mm-hmm. And you felt shame and you yeah. felt embarrassment. And that's so important for us to kind of recognize and take home. And one of the, you know, a lot of sport trainers and one in particular, who's a pretty big name, likes to say that your dog's training is, your dog's behavior is just a reflection of your training. And I just think that that's harmful because your dog's behavior is a reflection of so much more than that. Their entire world, Mm -hmm. their genetics, their body, what's going on with them physically, where they live. I mean, your dog's behavior is a reflection of so much more. And when we recognize it as its own thing that actually isn't about us, but that we can help them with, Mm-hmm. then we can go forward, I think, with a healthier mindset healthier and be more successful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I love that. So thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Thank Marissa. you for, for having me here. This was so fun. This was really, really great. So where can people find you if they want to know more? Yes, they can visit my website. It's pauseandreward.com. Um, also on Facebook and Instagram. And then like you mentioned, I have my own podcast, Pause and Reward Podcast, and you can find it on most platforms where you find podcasts. Fantastic. And I'll definitely link to all of those things for the listeners. Thanks so much, Marissa. Thanks so much, Sarah. Okay. And just a couple of Patreon questions for you guys this week. This one comes from Kelly, who just recently acquired a border collie puppy. The dog is five months old and Kelly's question is regarding decompression walks. She writes, they have always been a part of my routine, but this is the first puppy that I am teaching how to do them. She doesn't stray from the older dogs and the trails we're on rarely have other people on them. So I usually let her off leash. However, I fear my recall cue has turned into a cue to chase the older dogs. When I call them back to me, she starts to, but then the recall falls apart and she's just chasing the older dogs back to me. They typically ignore her, but continue to run to me and she gets her game of chase. I think my plan of attack is to put her back on a long line and a harness to prevent her from locking in on the older dogs and also take her on solo decompression walks and practicing the skills without the distraction of the older dogs. I'd be curious to hear your insights on this matter. I can also note that we've started Agility Foundation course, uh, Foundations course, so work has been started. So, Kelly, yeah, that's really normal, really common, um, but definitely something that you don't want. And I'm envisioning a dog that is coming but then notices the other dogs are running and decides to chase them in instead. 
And my biggest question that um, you didn't tell me whether or not it's happening is if she takes reinforcement from you after that or if she's just fixating on the other dogs. So um, if the answer is no, she won't come in for a cookie, then you definitely have a bigger problem. Um, so if she won't come in for the cookie, I would say it is solo walks until she finds you and your food on walks valuable. Because what's happening here is just her reinforcement history for chasing the other dogs, which is a natural, normal behavior that she already wants to do. That end of the scale is kind of tipping and you want the other end of the scale where, you know, eating food from you and responding to you to tip it back so that you've got um, more reinforcement weight kind of on one side than the other. And your plan of attack using a long line and harness for management is a good one when you walk her with the other dogs. I would primarily be trying to walk her by yourself uh, or by herself until that is looking better for you. So best of luck on that, Kelly. Next one comes from SI. She asks, this may be somewhat of a meaning of life question, <laughs> but I would love to hear your thoughts. Your podcast about how positive reinforcement can in fact be coercive is one that really has stuck with me. And I've heard others more recently talk about the idea that positive reinforcement does not necessarily mean not coercive. We know the enormous po power positive reinforcement can have to get the behaviors we want, but I also think most of us want our dogs to be happy, and she puts happy in quotations. While trying to train all we want to train, how would you define what to look for to evaluate whether our dogs are in fact happy in the process, knowing we can't actually know what they are feeling? I know your four steps to behavioral wellness. I guess this is about what we look for to see that what we are doing is accomplishing behavioral wellness, or is happy more than that? And then she added an edit later that says, I think sometimes a dog being over aroused slash excited is interpreted as joy and sometimes dog being shut down is interpreted as contentment. Wow, so loaded, fascinating, awesome question, SI. Here's, um, here's a couple of things. Number one, you're absolutely right. We don't know if they're happy or not. We can only observe their behaviors. And one of the most um, compelling moments for me to understand this was I was listening to Dr. Susan Friedman speak at Clicker Expo. And she showed a video of a Labrador that just had a big smiley face and cute laid back ears and a really wiggly body and really waggy tail. And she said, what emotion is the dog feeling? And the, the overwhelming response from the audience was joy happiness the dog is happy and she said you know what's interesting and she said what how do you know right and everybody was kind of like well can't you tell you know look at him <laughs> look at his body look at everything about him and she says um i want you to consider that he isn't behaving that way because he is happy but instead because he is happy or i'm sorry because he is behaving that way we call him happy. And that might be getting a little bit too deep for just this one question, but to me it comes, it all circles back around and we can identify behaviors that look like joy to us and then try to replicate those behaviors. So in my dog Felix, bounciness, you know, up on his toes and very light, um, light eyes, so not you know, <laughs> it's so hard, you guys. Lighter eyes, light, light expression, 
happy expression, smiley face, um, freedom of movement in his body. So no stickiness, no slowness. Those are things that make me think happy. Those are things that make me think joy. And so I seek those behaviors out in my training and I watch for those behaviors in my training. And that actually leads me to um, your, your edit where dogs being over aroused or excited is interpreted as joy and dogs being shut down is sometimes interpreted as contentment. I think you're completely right on that. Um, it still begs the question, how do we know? But I think that, you know, we can't say an agility dog is happy because he's fast. And we can't say an agility dog is happy because he's dragging you into the ring and staring at the equipment. Those are not things that look out of context like joy. Those are things that look out of context like either avoidance or, or heavy seeking of something else. And so I think sometimes when we just remove it from context and observe behaviors only, we will understand better what we're looking at. I've got a dog in my office right now laying on a bed. Um, his head is up, his face is soft, and he's kind of breathing nice and deep, and I would call him content. If we have a fireworks event and I have one of my dogs go lay in the back of a crate, and he's lying down, just like this dog in my office is lying down. Can I call him content? I'm going to say no because of the tightness of his body shoved in the back of the crate, the tightness of his mouth, the ear set on his head. We, we do our best to interpret their body language all the time. And I think sometimes what we need to do is remove, think if I saw this dog acting like this somewhere else, would I still think contentment or would I still think joy? Um, and the answer might be no or it might be yes. And so your larger kind of philosophical question of how do we know they're happy? To me, that's do they engage in joyous body language behaviors regularly? Do they not, you know, do they engage in... Um, stiff or avoidance types types of behaviors less frequently do they have problematic behavior patterns on a daily basis problematic meaning perhaps aggression towards housemates or towards the human or avoidance of housemates or the humans um i think that that's how we know if they're happy that's how we know if they're content but of course i don't think we really know ever so we're just all doing our best here. And I think you asking this question and getting us all thinking about it is the important thing and is the thing that we need to be doing. So thank you so much for asking that question. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.